Welcome everyone to the church. So glad to see you all. Good to see some new faces here joining us, possibly for the first time or fifth time or sixth time. It's so good to see you all uh, here this morning. Uh, My name is Pastor Mike Palumbo. I'm the pastor of Relational Discipleship. I oversee small groups, Sunday school, live stream, a few other uh, asterisks after that. Uh, But it's a joy to be here to preach the Word of God. And uh, we're in the middle of a series now. Uh, This series is about how we as a church can be in Rivermont and for Rivermont. How can we seek the flourishing of this community by the power of the gospel through faithful presence and faithful proclamation? Uh, We've looked at various different topics. And today we're going to look at uh, how it is that we can uh, be faithful in our presence and proclamation across cultures. How does the gospel intersect with the cultures around us? And how can we magnify Christ uh, in the marketplace of cultures? So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 17. That will be the main text that we'll be looking at today. Uh, But before we get there, uh, I want to draw your attention to a text that is just so significant to me. I love Psalm 8. It's a beautiful text that points to the glory of God. And this psalm begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When we gaze at the stars, it reminds us of transcendent beauty in a world that is languishing in the ugliness of sin and suffering. Looking up inspires us to dream of a world of beauty that's unmixed. No longer suffering. No more curse of weeds and thorns, rebellion and ruin, madness and misery. Stargazing often inspires us to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to meditate on the glory of His good creation. Many artists over the years have depicted the heavens in their artwork to demonstrate and display this glory. One such artist you're very familiar with stared many nights at the starry skies of southern France from his window, and he was wondering how much longer his suffering would endure. Van Gogh painted one of the most famous paintings called Starry Night. And he painted this painting while in a mental health asylum, suffering greatly. You see, Van Gogh was facing a swirling darkness in his life. The swirling darkness of paranoia, of depression, of disturbing outbursts. And so in this painting you see the dark scheme has swirls of motion in the painting, which kind of demonstrates the chaos of his life in this moment. And yet in the very bottom of this painting we see a church steeple that's pointing up. The bright shining stars, fading stars, but bright shining stars. And we're reminded that below this rolling darkness of the night sky of God's creation, there's still glory here. That this glory of God's grace is breaking into the darkness of this world of sin and suffering. And the question for today is how do we share the light of Christ among cultures that are groping in the dark? How can we magnify Christ in the marketplace of cultures? In Acts 17, we learn from Paul how we must engage and what we must say to these people. As Paul entered the marketplace of Athens, he entered into this city, which was a place of commerce and creativity. It was a place of learning and law. You see, the marketplace of Athens was also the place of the Areopagus. This is where the Senate deliberated over civic decisions. Philosophers would come and they would give lectures to people. They would listen and debate. And it was also the marketplace of many people from many places all coming together in one place. 
And this was a profound opportunity for Paul to magnify Christ among these cultures. So look at your Bible, Acts 17, starting at verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, faithful Savior, the one who has entered the darkness of this world to bring the light of your grace, we pray, O God, that you would lighten our eyes to see the beauty of your word, that we would trust the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would know the Father's love for us, and that in the power of the Spirit we would go out in mission to magnify Christ among the many cultures in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when you encounter someone from a different culture, how do you see them? Do you look past them disinterested, thinking if they're not from your culture, you're not interested in giving them your attention? Do you look down on them in judgment, evaluating them as inferior from you because they don't share the same practices or preferences? Or do you look into them to see the beauty of God's image and the brokenness of sin and suffering? Are you moved away from them with disdain? Or are you moved toward them with compassion, longing that they too would be saved. Growing up, my family often visited the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, Georgia. And as a young kid with a low attention span and a high capacity for fun, I didn't quite appreciate this experience as much as I could have. I would walk from room to room only to find my mom two rooms back staring too long at a painting that seemed dull and boring. I figured that all the benches that were put out there in this museum were put there for children to nap on while their parents take way too long staring at what's called fine art. Little did I know that these benches were created to help people to look. They were made to focus the attention of the observers so they would take in the beauty and the brokenness of this art. And they were to be moved by what they saw. After facing much persecution in Thessalonica and Berea, Paul moved on to Athens and waited for his partners in ministry to join him. Athens was like one large city museum with many different cultural artifacts throughout the city. There were temples and idols and cultural icons. Today, many people marvel at these cultural artifacts as works of art. But when Paul saw this city full of idols, he did not admire the beauty that he saw. He was deeply provoked in his spirit. Paul certainly did not look away from these idols disinterested. It may appear at first glance that Paul is looking down on these people in judgment. 
But if you are in church, you might say, well, hey, look, this is what Christians do, isn't it? Here's a bunch of angry Christians berating other people for not following their customs. Or maybe you see this event and you see that this is here another example of intolerant, closed-minded, bigot Christians who don't care for cultural intelligence or respect people from other religious beliefs. But this is too simplistic of an understanding of this word, provoked. What is Paul getting at when he's provoked here? Paul is not looking away disinterested, nor is he looking down in judgment. But he's actually looking into these idols to see the deep distress of these people. The word for look here is theoreo. It's the word from which we get the word theory. And it means to watch with continuity and attention something that appears unusual. He looks into the religious practices of this people, and he sees a people devoting all of their love, sacrificing all of their time, devoting all of their lives to a delusion. He looks at these idols and their various features, and he says that they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they don't make a sound in their throat. He knows that these Athenians who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. He knows the sorrows of those who run after another god will multiply. So we see here that Paul is grieving that they worship false gods of love and agriculture, commerce, war, and more. And folks, we too should see our culture and grieve because we worship these same gods in America. Paul is deeply distressed because he is drawn to these people. This is not ethnocentrism where he holds his culture as better than the rest, but it's rather theocentrism. He has a heart distressed by these idols because he knows that these people were made for God alone. They have turned from the living and true God to worship after lies. It is a jealous anger that seeks exclusive loyalty to God alone. And if we will magnify Christ among the marketplace of cultures, we too must be provoked to proclaim the gospel. Paul's distress drove him to dialogue with these Epicureans and Stoics regarding Jesus and the resurrection. Now, what do we know about these people? Well, the Epicureans were the secular materialists. They were the ones who believed the world was simply a combination of random particles colliding to no purpose. In their opinion, there was no God to seek or judgment to fear. Not expecting divine purpose or judgment, they strive to attain pleasure by avoiding suffering and grief and pursuing satisfaction and also happiness. The Stoics had more of a pantheistic view of God. They sought to align their will with inherent wisdom in the universe. They sought to understand the clear knowledge of the cycle of nature and cultivate a willing acceptance of it. This often resulted in a passive fatalism that discouraged proactive pursuit of passion. They likewise did not seek the Lord to change their circumstances. You see, these philosophers spent much of their day in nothing but telling or hearing something new. When working with people unaware of the message, we need to bring the gospel in a certain way, as Paul did. We need to begin in the very beginning of creation. Look at verse 22 of Acts 17. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. We see in this text that Paul is provoked by this idolatry. And therefore he proclaims that God is the divine artist who created the world. By stating God made the world, Paul corrects the Epicurean philosophy of naturalism and the Stoic philosophy of impersonal fatalism. Like a thoughtful artist filled with love, God made this world a beautiful place from his blank canvas. By faith we believe that this world was created by the word of God. And that everything that is seen was created by what was unseen. And we see here that by every single word that proceeded out of God's mouth, they were like brushstrokes of glory painting the beautiful canvas of God's creation. This world was a masterpiece beyond measure. God's beautiful work was completed as a good creation with trees that were pleasant to the eye and good for food. It was functional and fruitful. Because God is the creator, we must proclaim among the nations about God's design. We must see Paul's conviction of God's creation in the way that he speaks to these philosophers. He doesn't mock them for wasting their God-given brain to chase after lies. He honors them in dialogue. He respectfully engages with their intellectual errors because he believes these mistaken philosophers are made in the image of God. He affirms their dignity by acknowledging their spiritual pursuit and their intellectual attempts. He says, I perceive that you are very religious. Even though people from other religions worship a false god, we must acknowledge that their pursuit of religion in general is an instinct given by God. John Calvin says that that there exists in the human mind, indeed by natural instinct, some sense of deity, we hold this to be beyond dispute. Since God himself, to prevent any man from pretending ignorance, has endued all men with some idea of Godhead, the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges. What's John Calvin saying? He's saying that everyone has a sense of God. They grope after some understanding of God, even though it may not be the true God. Even when irreligious people find themselves seeking a transcendent experience of workplace achievement or loving relationships or deep pleasures or even camping in a cathedral that's closed down in Europe. This is evidence that they're groping for something deeper. You see, we must begin with this religious impulse to the unknown God and make known to these people the God to whom their longing points. And when they ask us about the true hope of our longing, we respond to them with gentleness and respect due the image bearers of God. Because God is the creator of all things, we must proclaim that he is the Lord of all things. The God who made it all, owns it all, and he has authority over all that he has made. And ever since this postmodern shift, we've had a shift in authority in our culture. It's moved from the author to the audience. We say when we look at a piece of art, we say, look what this art means to me. Rather than asking the question, what was the author's intent in making this art? 
You see, the divine artist has an intended purpose for every masterpiece he has made. We do not determine the meaning of God's artwork. Rather, we discover in his word the aims of his heart and the purposes of our life. Being the artwork of the creator king, we must surrender to his rule in all of life. As Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 1.16, all things were created through him and therefore for him. Richard Baxter helps us apply this truth of God's creation. He says, if all things be from God as the creator and preserver, then we must be deeply possessed with this truth, that all things are for God as their ultimate end. For he that is the beginning and the first cause of all things must needs be the end of all. His will produced them, and the pleasure of his will is the end for which he did produce them. We also must devote to serve the Lord through our work as co-creators. You see, our daily labor is a means by which we partner with God in his creation. We cause creation to flourish. We either do this by protecting and preserving the creation from those things that threaten to damage it, Some of us connect creatures in love with one another. Others of us fix broken creature bodies. Many of us create raw material. We take the raw materials of creation and we make beautiful art and functional products. We have two members, Tessa Sidner and Missy Phelps, that will be teaching art classes in this church as a way to live in Rivermont for Rivermont. And when they do this, they will be equipping co-creators. So in light of this whole idea of God as the artist who creates, we must respectfully engage those across cultures because they're made in God's image. We must connect their sense of God to the one true God, and we must call them to wholehearted devotion to God, the creator king. Second, being provoked, we proclaim to them that God is a divine engineer who sustains all things. If God the artist proclaims his beauty of his creation then God the engineer points to the wisdom of God's creation. I would say that many of us are very grateful for one specific engineer who has helped us through many power outages. Has anyone had one of those recently in Lynchburg? When we moved here to Lynchburg, many people told us about this massive windstorm called the derecho that knocked out power for weeks in the hottest week of Lynchburg in the summer. I'm sure many of you suffered through that time yourselves. Many feared the loss of not only their power, but also their nourishment as food began to spoil. Power outages have a tendency to remind us that our lives are dependent upon a power outside of ourselves. With technical wisdom, Fred Kern developed a design for a generator that was robust enough to power corporations, but also affordable enough to power homes. His revolutionary work with this generator designed a generator to reduce emissions and to run for a longer period of time. When Fred Kern sold Generac, he invested his money in institutions that sustained flourishing societies. Fred Kern invested his money in seminary education because he believed that pastors would preach a gospel that integrates the Lord's sustaining work to all of life. The Lord sustained me through seminary because of this scholarship, and now I have the opportunity to proclaim this life-giving God. You see, in this text, we see Paul declare that the creator king sustains all things, but not like a generator, but by a God who's generating love in his world through his careful touch of all things. Look at verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, 
since God Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As the sustainer of all things, we must proclaim to the world that God is the giver of life. We do not live and move and have our being because of the power of our bodies or the power of technology. We live because God, who has life in himself, gives us life. God doesn't need us, but gladly gives to us. As John Piper says, everything that exists owes its existence to him. And no one can add anything to him that is not already flowing from him. We move. Because God, who stands out of nothing, has given us legs to stand on and a mind to direct our legs. You see, God doesn't exist like the rest of us exist. To exist means to stand out of something. Everything in God's creation exists because it stands out of God as His eternal source. But God alone is self-existent. So, when your atheist friend says, I don't believe God exists, your response could be, I don't think he exists either. He is this self-existing one who stands out of nothing. He is the one who holds all things together in this creation. He is the eternal one. And we have our being because God, who is before all things, and whom all things hold together, holds every particle in our body in his perfect providence. He sends forth his spirit, and we are created. And when he takes away our breath, we die. We proclaim that God the engineer is also the organizer of life. He has even appointed the periods of time and the boundaries of our dwelling place. No season of life, whether full of prosperity or challenge, whether it's full of joy or sadness, whether full of triumph or trial, comes to us by the random colliding of atoms. God has weaved together the circumstances of our lives because he's an engineer. He is an engineer who out of his profound love draws us to himself through these circumstances. This transcendent God is not far from each of us, but rather he is guiding us through circumstances in life so that we might seek him, feel our way toward him, and find him. And it might be that you've come this morning to this place to find the God who is seeking you out. Paul quotes a familiar poem from Eratus called Phenomena. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. Now this paganistic poem celebrates Zeus' kindness to give the gift of work, livelihood, and flourishing season for a fruitful harvest that will never fail. Paul takes this secular quote, this pantheistic quote, and he basically says that God is the one from whom we exist. We are not the offspring of Zeus, but of the Creator King who not only cares for us, but he is also the creator of us. Paul calls us to dependent devotion to God because God sustains us. This dependence drives us to thankfulness. We are thankful for the mind that God gives us to understand his world, for the abilities he's given us to serve and succeed at work. We are grateful for the relationships that we enjoy and even for the breath that we breathe. Let's all take one breath in. Do you realize... That every second that we breathe in is a second reminder that God cares for you. 
What a marvel of God's mercy. This dependence drives us to mission. God has determined our allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place that we would not only seek the Lord, but help others seek the Lord. We depend on Him as we live on mission wherever we live, work, and play. We trust that God has put us in these spheres of influence to love these people among us and to share the good news of Jesus. This changes the way we see our daily interactions. We begin to ask, how does God want me to serve and to speak to this person He's placed before me? We no longer see surprise interactions as interruptions, but as divine appointments for gospel encounters. This RFN, we're going to be training you and equipping you with opportunities about how to live on mission in your neighborhoods, where you live right now. So I want to encourage you to join us in September for that. This dependence also drives us through adversity. We no longer avoid seasons of hardship, but we ask, how might God be using this dark circumstance to draw me to himself? We see our trials as the breeding ground of perseverance, character development, and a deeper walk with God. And lastly, being provoked, we must proclaim that God is a divine critic who judges the world. Now, many artists seek to create a piece of art that will last a long time. Every artist that wants to last in the long history of art appreciation knows that they must make it through the critic first. And interestingly, there are a number of famous artists today that almost didn't make it through the critics. You ever heard of Claude Monet? Claude Monet was the founder of French Impressionism. He had critics complaining that his paintings were formless, unfinished, and ugly. He lived in abject poverty throughout his life. His art did not begin to sell until the 1880s. How about someone named Van Gogh? Van Gogh sold only one painting in his lifetime. Paul Cézanne? The father of modern art, he had his submissions rejected by the critics every year from 1864 to 1869. When the critic evaluates the work of the artist, he either gives his approval, which extends the life of the art, or disapproval, and the art dies when the artist dies. Every person seeks after this immortality and this life. Every culture desires this approval that results in everlasting life. And this desire for unending life comes from our design in an eternal God. Being made in the image of an eternal God, we cannot settle for the shortening of life. Yet all humans also wrestle with this fear of judgment and disapproval. We fear that we'll be excluded by certain groups or places because we are judged unworthy. In this last section, Paul declares that the God who created the world, who rules and sustains the world, will one day judge the world. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. We must proclaim the patience of God's justice. In the past, God overlooked the rebellion in the world. He permitted rebel sinners to live in his good creation. God would have been just to end human life at the first action of rebellion. Adam and Eve tried to hide for this very purpose. They tried to avoid death. They knew that the consequences for rebelling against God, the Creator King, would be death itself. When the creation cuts itself off from the Creator, it cuts the very umbilical cord that sustains its life. You see, we should all have immediately died under the just judgment and wrath of God. 
God not only overlooks their rebellion, but He even gives them everything that they need who want nothing to do with Him. As Richard Baxter said, God upholds the very being of sinners even while they sin against Him. God gives the drunk man his drink, the glutton his meat, the voluptuous youth their abuse, health, and strength. And all men have from him the powers or faculties of the soul and body by which they sin. We also must proclaim the penalty of God's righteous judgment. Verse 31 says that the Lord has fixed a day to judge the world in righteousness. By Jesus, God will judge all people under God's creation. He will judge the actions and attitudes of the heart based on His righteous standard. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Based on God's righteous judgment, He will repay with affliction those who have broken His created command. And those who have lived in rebellion against God will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. And this brings us to the altar of the unknown God. Why was Athens filled with so many idols and altars? Because Athens faced so many hardships. You see, they attributed all of these plagues and hardships to the displeasure of the gods. These altars were set up to appease the wrath of these displeased gods. A third century Greek author named Diogenes Laertes records the history of this altar to an unknown god in a classical work called The Lives of Eminent Philosophers. Epimenides was asked to advise the city of Athens regarding an unending plague. This city sacrificed to all known gods, but the plague was not averted. Epimenides called the people to gather a flock of sheep first thing in the morning when they were the most hungry. And he said that wherever a hungry sheep lays down without eating, there you are to place an altar to an unknown god. This was their way of acknowledging any god that would be willing to help to take away this very hard plague. And after offering this sacrifice on these altars to unknown gods, the plague ceased. You see, Jesus has not only been appointed to judge the world, but also to save the world from judgment. For just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ was offered once as a sacrifice for sins. He came to bear the sins of many. Paul says that this man appointed to judge the world in righteousness has given us assurance by his resurrection. You see, Jesus died on this cross to bear the penalty of our sin. And when the Lord rose his body from the plague of death, he gave us the assurance that this curse of death would be lifted for all who trust in Jesus. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us so we might receive the promise of life by faith in Christ. The resurrection assures anyone who truly repents, who turns from their sin and surrenders to the Lord Jesus Christ, He promises them that they will be set free from the plague of death, that all of their sin will be forgiven, because the plague of death fell on Jesus Himself. You see, this is the good news of the Gospel. That the true Lamb that was sacrificed on the unknown altar to the unknown God is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Creator King Himself bears the punishment and appeases His wrath by taking the plague for us. The unknown God revealed Himself most clearly by coming to this known world of sin and suffering and laying down His life. 
that we would live. This is what God has done to save us. And Jesus will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for Him. When they heard the resurrection of Christ, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. But some joined and believed. As we go to the cultures of this world, we go with patience and persistence, ready to respond no matter their reaction. If they react by mocking us, we forgive them. We remember they mocked our Savior also. If they react with questions, we engage in gospel dialogue, guiding them along in the Scriptures. And brothers and sisters, there will be those among the nations who will react with true belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with them, we don't leave them to figure it out on their own. We come alongside them and we disciple them. We teach them how to abide in Christ and bear fruit in word and prayer. This complicated task of magnifying Christ across cultures can become very exhausting. It requires so much listening, learning, and adapting, contextualizing the gospel to this particular person. We can easily think that it's all up to us to persuade the nations into the kingdom. As we magnify Christ in the marketplace of cultures, we must remember, as Johann Sebastian Bach told us, I play the notes as they are written, but it is God who makes the music. We plant the seed of the gospel, but the Lord of the harvest brings the harvest. So being provoked, brothers and sisters, let us proclaim Christ among the nations because God is worthy of the praises of all peoples in every place to sing to the glorious grace of the one true God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You are a God of all nations, that You have created this world, that it is Your design, that You have made people in Your image, and Your desire is that this Gospel would go forward to the realm of all creation, to the far reaches of the ends of the earth. And You have equipped us by Your Spirit to go. And so, Father, empower us that we would go to the nations in our neighborhoods to declare the glory of our gracious King and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.